over the course of this retreat, we've been offering instruction and information about what are called the paramis. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the retreat, these paramis are qualities of mind or heart. They are the forces of purity which, when awakened and developed and brought to some maturity, lead one to being ready for liberating insight. And I acknowledge that the way I understand the the paramis, the development of patience, loving kindness, generosity, living in harmony, the ability to let go, renunciation, equanimity, the balance of mind. These qualities are necessary because the consequence of opening to the truth is so profound. It's as if we we need these qualities of heart in order to withstand true freedom. And it is the understanding in this tradition that we as householders, family members, people who have and fulfill civic social, financial, familial obligations, responsibilities. We have every opportunity to develop these qualities of heart and mind. It is not only from sitting on a cushion in a silent retreat or meditation center or monastery that we have that opportunity. And so it points to The challenge for each of us is to take the understanding that we have heard, thought about, practiced, and realized to some degree, and to make it the foundation or the basis of our lifestyle. Spreading a thin veneer of dharma over our contemporary, consumptive, distracted lifestyle is not going to do it. Our lifestyle needs to change. But it's not that we have to leave our life. Rather, we can develop the qualities of heart those awakened qualities of mind within our very life. 
within this very life. And with the adequate preparation, we can develop the understanding to free our hearts and minds from limitation. It is not only for extraordinary beings at the time of the Buddha 2,500 years ago that the Buddha taught. And it's not only beings 2,500 years ago that realized some degree of liberation. The teachings are alive. They are as alive as you make them. We have offered over the course of the previous days the teachings of the Buddha as we understand them, as we've practiced them, and to the extent that we have realized them. And we've held nothing back. And I know some of you have said, it's too much already, enough. (laughs) But nevertheless... You know, just in case you you leave, you go home, and uh, you wonder, now I wonder uh, about something. Well, we've tried to give it to you. (laughs) So hopefully it's not so much that you can't find some space for it. And even though you may not remember it, when you need it, it'll be there. The purpose of Awareness is to understand. The purpose of understanding is to be free. So tonight I want to speak about the last of the paramis that we have not yet spoken about, wisdom, and try to place it in the context of what we're doing here, in the formality of practice, and what we do in our life When the Buddha realized the truth, the deepest understanding of the truth, he codified his understanding in what are called the Four Noble Truths. And the fourth of those Four Noble Truths is an articulation of the path of practice. That each one who wishes to awaken, who aspires to awaken, must walk, must develop. And the Noble Eightfold Path contains eight qualities of mind, qualities of heart, trainings even, behaviors, that when developed will allow one to overcome suffering and the causes of suffering. But those eight factors of the Noble Path can be reduced to three trainings. The training in sila or Morality that purifies our speech and behavior, which we've practiced here on retreat by taking the precepts. And by undertaking a training of sila, we are able to enjoy the happiness of living in harmony. Even for a week, it's, it's a relief. I don't think many of you have had arguments with each other or misunderstandings or, I hope, I mean, what's been going on when we're not here? I don't know. But for the most part, 
we live in a pretty harmonious community. And it's not accidental. It's because we've made the effort to be careful how we relate to one another with our behavior and our speech. Nevertheless, as you have sat on your cushion, you have noticed another kind of suffering with the mind that is just run rampant. And how you speak and how you act just doesn't touch the unruliness of the mind. It can drive you crazy. And so the Buddha offered a second training in this Noble Eightfold Path called the training in samadhi, or the training in tranquility. It is is the purification of the mind. Not just the purification of our speech and behavior, but it's the purification of the mind temporarily, freeing the mind of the hindrances or the defilements. Well, even if you experience 30 seconds of no hindrances, or maybe even a minute, five minutes, maybe, maybe a half hour, you know that the mind that's not tormented is a great relief. It allows us to access, to realize the happiness of tranquility, calmness of mind. That happiness is much subtler, but it's also more enduring, if you will, than the happiness of living in harmony. However, I'm sure you've noticed that it is difficult to sustain the continuity of awareness that keeps the hindrances and the defilements aside. And so the Buddha taught and prescribed the third training of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is a training in the development of wisdom. And he said, by developing the right understanding, purifying your understanding of of the nature of things, not only can you temporarily remove or suppress the defilements, but you can uproot them from the mind. And that purification of our understanding comes from the practice of vipassana. And through the practice of vipassana, And the uprooting of the defilements, we open the door. We we have the potential to access the happiness of peace. Not just the happiness of living in harmony. Not just the happiness of calmness or tranquility. But the happiness of peace. So it is this third training of the Noble Eightfold Path this panya, understanding, wisdom, that is gained through insight, vipassana, that I want to speak about. When I say purification of understanding, what am I talking about? There are many layers, there are many levels. One of the most basic understandings that we have to somehow get into our mind, is that it matters what you say, do, and think. It matters. And it matters not only to the person that you're saying, doing, or thinking it about, or to, but it matters to you. 
because each action, speaking, thinking, acting in the world, is a karmic act. And karmic acts are plant the seed of result, potential result or potential consequence in our mind, in the mind stream. And even though we may not immediately reap the fruit of our karma, that seed is in the mind. And when conditions ripen, we will harvest the fruit. The law of karma essentially posits that if you speak and act and think with a wholesome mind, you will experience pleasant results. Or pleasant results are sure to come in the wake of wholesome actions. On the other hand, if one speaks, acts, thinks with an unwholesome mind, unpleasant results are sure to be harvested. If we want to be happy, we're going to look for pleasant experience. We know it's easier to be happy with pleasant experiences. If we want to be happy, act skillfully. A teacher that I'm practicing with, or have been most recently practicing with in Burma, says that wisdom inclines toward the good, but it's not attached to it. It also shies away from what is not good, but it's not averse to it. Wisdom recognizes the difference between skillful and unskillful, and wisdom clearly sees the undesirability of the unskillful. In order for each one of us to act skillfully, wholesomely, to plant the seeds of future happiness, we need to develop wisdom. We cannot rely on others to tell us what to do, the books, the authorities, or even your own best guess. It's deeply understanding one's own heart that will allow you to make the choices that we inevitably must make in life to lay the foundation, to, to, to plant the seeds of happiness. And it's only by developing wisdom, this self-knowledge, that we're able to do that. The right view of karma is, is essential. As we practice, we refine our understanding of karma. So you don't need to know all about it in the beginning. But as you practice, you begin to see the effects. You begin to see the understanding you have playing out in your life. Now, when we speak about karma, there are just so many questions that arise. How does it happen? You know, that something somebody said last week or two lifetimes ago 
comes up now is a pleasant or unpleasant result. Who knows? I don't know. I can't convince you. There's no scientist in the world that's going to prove karma to you. But if you practice, you will begin to live your life as if the law of karma were true. So the right, right, right understanding of karma. As we go along in practice, we will also purify our understanding of the paramis. We'll develop a deeper understanding of the Four Noble Truths. We'll begin to understand the, uh, the profundity, the depth, and the relationship between all the paramis. We begin to understand the, the, the three characteristics of all phenomena. Impermanent, unsatisfactory, impersonal. There are many understanding to develop and to refine in the course of our practice. Now wisdom or understanding is acquired in at least three different ways. We can hear, as you are now, someone speaking about the Dharma. Or you can read it in a book. And you acquire a certain amount of information. That's useful. But how do you know it's true? There's a lot of books out there. There's a lot of spiritual gurus around. How do you know what they say is really the truth? Well, we have to think about it. We have to read it. We have to consider it. We have to think about it. We have to reflect on it. We have to kind of weigh what is being said against our experience. We need to use our capacity to reason and logic and to, to kind of give it the test. Is this, does this even sound right? And by thinking, reflecting, considering, we can eliminate some and we can suspend our doubt about others. But it's only through practice. It's only through paying very careful attention to your own experience, your own heart, that you will know for sure whether something is true or not. The books, the authorities, reflection are helpful, but they're not sufficient to understand the deepest subtleties of the truth. For that, one must develop their own understanding. I remember when, I, I think, I'd only been practicing a couple of years, I'd only done a, a few retreats, Someone gave me the book, the Visuddhimagga. Now, the Visuddhimagga is this huge book on the path of practice, uh, uh, written 500 years after the Buddha's uh, life by this monk, Buddhaghosa, and it is a, a, just an intricate compendium of practice necessary to awaken. And I'd heard about jhanas, I just heard the word jhana, and I was fascinated, as many people are. Now, what the heck is a jhana? So I figured, well, the Vizudimaga is going to tell me. So I got the book, and I opened it up, and I read 
all you could find about the jhanas. I didn't know anything. <laughs> I read everything there was, and it didn't... I mean, I read what's there, but it just didn't make... It just didn't register as anything important. You know, when you think, when you hear about the jhanas, you think, wow, it's going to be... Mm. You know, like enlightenment. It's like, wow, I better, I better read the book, find out what I'm missing. You know, and so... I read the book, and I, you know, it's like, what a disappointment. But that didn't stop me from thinking about it. And I kept thinking and ruminating. And, you know, some people say, oh, it's a little bit like taking drugs. It's a little bit like this. It's like, and so you, you try to think about something that you have no experience about. Nevertheless, you can have a, you know, you don't have to be fully informed to be fully opinionated. <laughs> You know, half informed is good enough. So, later, in practicing in, in, in Asia, I had some opportunity to do some uh, concentration practice and uh, refined my understanding. But it was based on what I'd read, what I'd thought about, but most importantly, on what I'd experienced. Wisdom is like that. It's only through that direct experience. We've used the word knowing. To know. To be aware. To be mindful. To understand. Experience. But I want to, I want to kind of tease these words apart a little bit so that we can begin to get a little clearer on what it is that we're actually working with primarily in the development of insight and wisdom. There is the knowing called vijnana, or consciousness, which is to know. It cognizes whatever comes in the sense door. It's always present. There's always this kind of knowing going on. But it doesn't interpret, it doesn't recognize, it doesn't have any wisdom, It just cognizes, pure sensory cognition. We say that's knowing, sense knowing, sensory knowing. There's also sanya or perception, which is the capacity of the mind to recognize what has come in through the sense doors, to take the form and color and recognize it as a tree, a bell, a lamp, a person. But perception, that recognition, does not have any wisdom. It takes panya, or wisdom, to make a value judgment of what is seen and recognized. And when I say wisdom, I mean wisdom or delusion. Because we can see recognize and understand wrongly. Or we can see, recognize, and understand correctly. So it is panya, or moha, delusion, that will interpret or add value to what is seen. So let's take an example. Imagine...
Imagine up on Hawes Hill Road, the person who owns the property on the right decides they want to develop that. They want to put a little housing development in there. Well, they look at the trees on that land and they say, got to get these out of the way. Can't build houses with the trees. The environmentalist in the neighborhood comes up and says, oh my gosh, this is a, an old growth forest. You can't uh, cut that. It uh, flows into the watershed and you know, it's going to pollute the water and you can't do that. And the, uh, the property owner, the one who owns it, sees an investment in all those trees. The builder sees all that lumber in all those trees. And the miller, the person in the mill, sees all those board feet of lumber. The carpenter himself, herself, sees the form and function and the texture and the appearance of the lumber from those trees. Which one's right? They, have, they all have a very different understanding of what it is they're looking at. They all see the color and the shape. Same color, same shape. They all recognize it as tree. But they all add a different value based on their understanding which may be wise, it may be utilitarian, it may be very deluded. Well, we're doing that all the time. Whatever we see, we recognize, and we add value. This is where we create suffering or freedom. You may have noticed in the course of your practice how sometimes you know, uh, an incident in your life comes up or something you're dealing with now comes up and just keeps bugging you. It just comes up again and again and again and again. And one time you see it and you're just angry. You're just angry. You just can't get out of your anger. You know, a day later you look at it and all you can see is you know, the disappointment that you have with that situation. Disappointment. And another day... You're feeling a little more equanimous, and you're just like, oh, what the heck? You know what? Just let it go. The next day, it comes up, and all you have is your attachment to wanting things to be a certain way. And it's as if this single thing, the event in your life, the person in your life, the phone call you had, the argument you had, whatever it was, it's as if this thing has a hundred or more facets to it. And you get to look at it. From this perspective, from this perspective, another perspective, a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, a seventh. Until you have seen every facet of it, you don't really know it. You're caught in a limited view if you only see one facet. And it's impossible to have a balanced understanding, an equanimous or a, a wise understanding of something if you only see it from one side, from one angle. The task of our practice is to hang in there, see it from all of its facets, whatever it can present to you, so that we, un- we acquire a full understanding of it. And when we have a full understanding of something, what to do with it, how to value it, you know, the decision to be made is clear. If, you need a, if you're having to make a decision and you can't because it's too... You haven't seen it yet. You haven't seen the tree. You haven't seen the full issue. And so, 
the challenge for us is how do we hang in there to see all the facets? Because you know, when you get caught in anger or an aversive reaction to something, it's hard to let go. You believe that's the right response to that situation. But when we can disentangle ourselves a little bit and see it from another facet, we see how wrong or how partial that aversive reaction was. So rather than focusing on what we know in each experience, in each moment, to investigate this moment, we need to let go of that and make space for whatever else can be known. So rather than directing our attention to focus on, narrow down on, hang on to, go into that experience, once we've recognized it, we need to back up, open up, let that go, and see what else is there. It's kind of like standing close to a moving train. You see it, but you don't see it very clearly. It's going too fast. There are two ways to see it better. One is to just back up. The further away you get from a speeding train, the more clearly you can see it. But you're a little distant from it. The second way that you can see what's going on in the train is to be in another train going beside it at the same speed. That's what mindfulness does. The continuity of your mindfulness can keep up with anything going on in your mind. Going into it or backing away from it, you don't see it. But when, you, when, the, when the continuity of your awareness can keep up with what is flowing through the mind, then you see things clearly. So it is the continuity of awareness that will bring us correct understanding. Mindfulness or meditation is the work of the mind. It's mind work. It's not how you sit. It's not the posture you have. It's not you know, your diet. It's, not, it's really the work of the mind. But this mind that we're working so much with, where is it? Does it have a color, a size, a shape? How do we know we have a mind? We know we have a hand. We can see it. We know we have a stomach. It does something. We know we have other organs in the body. But how do we know we have a mind? We know because we, we see the work of the mind. The work of the mind is to know. It's to understand. It's to value. And we see that all the time. It's so obvious. It's hard to see. This mind, though, it does not belong to you, but you are responsible for it. I'm sure you've noticed how uh, this mind doesn't seem to be yours. I mean... Really, can you tell your mind to be quiet? Oh, you can tell your mind to be quiet. Does it obey? It does not. 
in one sense, we can't control it. We can't make it do what we want. Nevertheless, we are responsible for it. Because it is the mind that suffers. Or it is the mind that's happy. That's the work. That's the mind work of meditation. To move the mind from the causes and conditions of unhappiness to the causes and conditions for happiness. We've tried to show over the course of the retreat with our instructions how important it is to have the right attitude in your practice. To come to practice with this right understanding and the right attitude, which means to understand that what we're observing, though it is the mind and body, it's not my mind and my body. That attitude will cause you a lot of suffering. I'm sure you've seen. But when there is that clarity of perception, that it is the nature of the mind that's being observed, it is the nature of the body to experience pain, to experience subtlety or hunger or heat. It's the nature of the mind to experience fear, joy, confidence, doubt. Having that right understanding, that right attitude is so important because how we think about our experience will determine in large part our our experience. What we think about it, how we feel about it, will determine how we experience it. When we have wrong ideas, wrong attitudes, we're sure to be in some sort of struggle with the way things are, if we don't understand things correctly. How can we live in harmony with what we don't understand? It's, it's impossible. So, in the course of our practice, we have these challenges. It's the work of awareness, to, to, it's the work of the mind, it's the work of meditation to be aware. Awareness leads to wisdom. And it's wisdom that determines or differentiates between what is skillful and what is unskillful. Meaning, by developing awareness, leading to wisdom, we can make wise choices. This growth in wisdom can only come about when we deeply understand the defilements. However, most of us come to practice looking for good experience. We want to be calm. We want to be aware. We want to be clear. We want to be confident. We want to be tranquil. We want to be... And so, looking for those experiences... We miss, ignore, minimize, deny, avoid everything that gets in the way of them, which is really the fertile ground of our practice. 
Rather than focusing, looking for, trying to get good experience, if we pay attention to the defilements, and every time they come up, we pay attention in order to understand them, it is that understanding of the defilements. It's the understanding of how aversion is in the mind, how it arises, what it does to your mind, what it does to your body, or doubt, how it arises, what it does to your mind, what it does to your body. Really understanding the defilements leads to wisdom. Avoiding the defilements, your mind will remain weak. No understanding. We should look for, we should search for, if you will, really, any manifestation of the defilements. But it's difficult because they're so unpleasant. We don't need to search for them, just as we don't need to search for tranquility. They come loud and clear. They're knocking on the door much of the time. So rather than expecting good experiences, we should try to work with the defilements instead. Why? Now I know, I mean, I've been practicing a while. I know, I hate those defilements. I do, I don't like them. You know, <laughs> because they're so unpleasant. They just, they just make me miserable. Well, that's what the Buddha said. It's those visiting forces known as defilements that are the cause of all our unhappiness. But, to the extent that we understand the defilements, it's not, I mean, you know how hard it is. You can't get rid of the defilements. You can distract yourself from them, but you can't get rid of them. It's only through understanding are we able to remove them from our mind. When we deeply understand the defilements, then they no longer bother us. We're no longer identified with them. We're no longer ignoring them or ignorant of them. So we should welcome when we recognize any of the defilements, any of the hindrances, any of the tormented states of mind, we should say, okay, I see, I see you. And really see and observe, watch, in order to understand what it does to us, what it does to the mind, what it does to the body. Practice is to transform those defilements into wisdom. Growing understanding out of misunderstanding. You know when you hear what I'm saying, and you hear the instructions, and you hear this, it sometimes... You know, you can't always believe immediately what you hear. But what you hear goes into your mind, and it works in the background. While you are paying attention, what you've heard is just trying to see, is this right, is that right, is this so? Hmm, remember he said that. And it's not all conscious, of course, but it's just working in the background so that we can begin to see more accurately the way it really is. Because it's through that right view and right understanding that we're able to be free. 
by paying attention, by being mindful, we develop insight. Now, what is insight? We talk about Vipassana, we talk about insight, but really, what is it? Insight means to see really beneath the surface of things, to see deeply, to see the inherent characteristic, if you will, to see below the surface, to understand more than appears superficially. Now, I can tell you, I can tell you an insight. Everything changes. Got it? Okay, you want the next one? Okay. The understanding everything changes, when we hear it, is just an understanding. It's not yet wisdom. It's only when, through our own direct observation, we see, we observe, and we know for ourselves everything changes. That this, this, well, you just have to call it a peculiar form of knowing arises in the mind. You can't make it happen. You can't look for it. You don't know when it's going to happen. But there is that sudden recognition. That's the way it is. Bob was really, really skillful. It's almost like we planted him in the audience the other day. And he was saying, remember he was saying how he was working, he was working with his judging mind, and he was trying to get rid of it, and he was working with it, working with it. And then all of a sudden he just stopped struggling, and he realized, whoop, oh, don't have to struggle with it. You just see it, and it's there. That's insight. He wasn't planning for it. He didn't know it was coming. But he finally saw for himself. And it's so liberating. Everything that we've said is just like that. At some point, you'll have your own personal understanding, personal experience of it, where you have that peculiar shift from knowledge to understanding, to wisdom, because it's seen within yourself. Then... That understanding is hard to dislodge. What you read in a book can be dislodged very easy by the next book. But what you see for yourself is very difficult to dislodge. However, it can, it can, it can grow stale. And it's only by continued practice that we keep the essence of insight alive. That we keep it alive in our, in our minds so that we don't get caught again like we were before. Vipassana always steps back in order to see things more clearly. Samatha goes into experience to see it more clearly. But Vipassana steps back. Here's this experience of the present moment. Here is the awareness of it. To gain insight into what's happening, recognize the observation of the object. It is that recognition of the observation of the object that is the true insight into seeing the nature of the mind. How the mind is constructing this 
apparent reality out of all these form and colors, sounds, smells, tastes, shapes. It's only by seeing clearly, accurately, the way things are, and having that understanding deeply known from our own personal observation that we can live in harmony with it. That's wisdom. More than just understanding, it's personally experienced wisdom. When we deeply understand the way things are, we're no longer identified with them. We're no longer caught in them. We're no longer able to ignore them or be ignorant of them. But real acceptance and detachment are born of wisdom, are born of that personal understanding. But this development of wisdom, it's hard. It's really hard. You know, it's hard to sit here and watch. Just observe, in order to understand deeply the way things are, the way it is unfolding, the way it affects you, what it does to the heart, what it does to the mind, what it does to the body. So, developing awareness is really a lifelong journey. But what you've done here doesn't need to stay here. You can do this at home. You can do this at work. You can do this every moment of your life. It is nothing other than observing, paying attention, just recognizing what is being known in each moment. It's not difficult to do. It's difficult to remember to do. And to do it with the continuity where it will have a noticeable effect. Everything we say is just a reminder to try to get you to notice again and again and again. Hopefully you've internalized all the instructions, all the Dharma talks, all the exhortations, all the inspiration. Well, I don't know, your head would be pretty full if you did all that. But nevertheless, that's what's needed in order to keep reminding ourselves. Just notice, just notice, just notice. When we practice correctly, what we learn is useful to us in our life. We begin to see how to, how to live, how to respond, how to react. Someone asked me the other day, he said, whatever happened to the road? You know, remember Kamala was telling a story about our neighbors when we said we were going to put a road in across the nearby property? <laughs> you know, somebody came and said, Kamala never told us what happened to the road. You know, well, in our utter and profound wisdom, it's on hold. <laughs> For now. We'll see when the time comes whether we need it. By paying attention, as we do, to our momentary experience, we see the experience. But underneath each and every experience are what are called the three characteristics of all experience. And this is where true vipassana takes place. When we see, deeply see, that all 
experience are impermanent. Now, I don't mean we're thinking about that. But I mean that in that momentary observation we see, it just doesn't last. And when we see deeply that things just don't last, the um, corollary of that is there's nothing to hold on to. And when we don't hold on, we can be free. It doesn't mean that the world disappears. It doesn't mean that we've got to give up everything. It means that we don't hold on to what is changing out from underneath us. Second characteristic is the characteristic of dukkha. It means that experience is either painful, some of which we know, or because it changes, it's unstable, that we know. When things are unstable, we feel insecure. That's unsatisfying. The second characteristic of all phenomena is that it leaves us feeling unsatisfied. If you feel unsatisfied with something, someone, it's easy to let go. And so it's this insight too, which leads the mind to let go, to not grasp and reach for what we know cannot provide stable satisfaction. The third characteristic is the what's called the anatta characteristic or the selfless characteristic. I prefer to say it is the impersonality of conditions. The mind, it throws up into your face whatever it wants. The body, too, has its own agenda in this life. We're just along for the ride. When we see deeply how impersonal it all is, what comes up in the mind, what comes up in the body, We can't control it. We can't make it be the way we want it to be. We can't ensure that that we're going to be healthy. We can't ensure that the mind's going to be happy. It's impersonal. Due to conditions, pleasant and unpleasant arise. When we deeply see that, what is it that we're going to hang on to, thinking we can control it? Nothing. Again, this insight, I won't say forces the mind or causes the mind, but it encourages the mind to let go. And when we let go, what we're really letting go of is suffering. Insight is the doorway to peace. Deeply understanding these three characteristics opens the heart to this vast peace, this this unrippled, unagitated, because of understanding this is the way things are. And when we understand the way things are, we can live in harmony with them. If we don't understand the way things are, we'll be struggling, we'll be doing, we'll, it's hard to live in peace. It's hard to live at ease 
with what you do not understand. But if you understand, then we can move our life into alignment and live in harmony and peace with that. Practicing in this way brings benefits, calmness, harmony, clarity, tranquility, balanced mind, understanding, and the potential for living a meaningful life. Let's sit for a moment. Let the words quiet down. When your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change. When your values change, your priorities will change as well. And through such understanding, you will naturally practice more, and this will help you to do well in life. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.